So today's class is the third part of a series of unknown length uh, that we're going <laughs> to uh, to talk about uh, Jewish history. And what we're going to try to cover today is the um, the story of the Second Commonwealth uh, of of Judea. Of Judea. Uh, we left off last time um, with. We had the first temple built. It was really nice and wonderful for about 40 years, right? And then Solomon dies, and his son makes a few poor political decisions. There is a, uh, there's a secession, right, that, that becomes two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. The kingdom of Israel in the north, they don't have access to the temple, and they build their own temples. Unfortunately, they build temples to some other gods. And this... Uh, repudiation of Judaism eventually uh, um, ends with their being captured and dispersed by the Assyrians, and they're gone. We have no idea. We don't know where they are. Um, in all likelihood, many, many of their uh, citizens came down and joined the kingdom of Judah in the, Judah in the south, but they're gone. Uh, and then we have another 150, 170, 180, exactly the numbers, years, until finally the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, the great Babylonians come along and they um, capture Jerusalem and they send the Jews packing east. And from this point on in history until the 20th century, we're going to have a major and um, sometimes even um, the major center of Jewish life is going to be in Babylon. Uh, and where we ended off the story was that there's this 70 years between the first and second temples. We have the whole story of the, 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 the emergence of the Persian Empire and um, the story of Purim, right? the Purim story, Mordechai, Esther, that story we're all familiar with. We have the Jews coming back um, initially to rebuild the temple. Uh, they get stopped by the Samaritans, that we call them the not-so-good Samaritans, not the good Samaritans. The not-so-good Samaritans, who are uh, known as Kusim, a people, the people of um, unknown uh, status, uh, whether the Jewish or not, do they, do they convert, do they not convert, do they convert um, genuinely or sincerely or maybe not? That's a whole debate in the Talmud. You see every page in the Talmud talk about these people called the Kusim, which are the Samaritans, which are the people that replaced the uh, Jews in the northern part of Israel. Uh, they were always uh, in conflict with the, the, you know, the rest of the Jewish mainstream Jewish community. They convinced the poor Persians to withdraw their... Uh, their support for the rebuilding of the temple, and it, it was it was halted, and then 15 years later was resumed under the leadership and stewardship of Ezra. That's where we ended off. We're talking about, about the year 350 before the Common Era. Everyone knows how the, the whole system before and after, which we work backwards. Uh, so we're talking about what 23, 2400 years ago, and we have we have Ezra, a great leader. He comes to uh, to Israel from Babylon. He brings with him, uh, ironically, what he does is he brings with him the people of suspect uh, status. It means he doesn't take all the best and brightest with him from Babylon. He takes the people that are kind of the the weakest amongst the Jewish people. Uh, as a way, the way it's described in the Talmud is that he kind of purifies the uh, the Babylonian community, and as because he was such a talented and um, successful leader, he felt like uh, him together with Nehemiah, they were able to uh, to uh, develop and foster 
in uh, a very strong, vibrant community in Israel, but while leaving the uh, community of Babylon to flourish. That's basically where we ended off. So what we're going to try to cover today is the whole period of the Second Temple, Second Temple period. We're going to meet the Greeks, of course. We're going to have the story of Hanukkah, and uh, ultimately we'll deal with the Romans and hopefully the Christians, etc. So that's the plan for today. Good? All in an hour and a half. Okay. So, there is a group of people called the Men of the Great Assembly. Who's heard of them? Uh, and they um, play a very pivotal role um, at the beginning of the Second Commonwealth period. And not only that, we kind of feel their role today in the Judaism that we have today. Um, it kind of was uh, shaped and molded by these, by this body. So who was this body? If we talked, we talked about last time, the previous time, we talked about the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. It was established by? Jethro. Well, Moses. by Moses. Jethro established something else, which is, we, he established a, a, a system, like a hierarchy system of uh, appellate courts and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but the actual Sanhedrin with the single, the single group of Sanhedrin, which is 70, uh, 71 members plus 69 um, clerks, would you call them, <laughs> members-in-waiting, uh, and they were um, established by Moses to adjudicate the people. It's the highest court of Jewish law. Now remember, the time of Moses, you don't really need a court to mediate differences, differences in, 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 a, in legal opinion. Why? Because you have Moses there. You have prophets there. You have Moses that could direct link with, with God. You have 700 years of prophets. We have prophets all the way down to Ezra. Right? So their role is not going to be that critical. Yes, there'll be a court, and a court, uh, a court you know, is very, it's a very important uh, body because you have, you know, you have legal cases that to, to have to try. But the other aspect of the Sanhedrin, which is not only to try the cases, but to mediate the legal differences, what we would perhaps say the, the you know the, the Supreme Court today, it's not just about the actual case, but it's about the opinion. The opinion is much more important than the individual case because the opinion kind of sets the tone of what is and is not law. So that part of the Sanhedrin's responsibility is going to explode. Why? Because we have a downturn in prophecy. Uh, we kind of see the writing of the wall, the, the, the prophecies are fewer and fewer. There's not so many prophets around. The last of the prophets are Haggai and Mekomalachi, and that's it. So at that time, you have the last of the prophets. So you know that there's going to come a point really in the really not-so-distant future where there's no more prophets. So what, what do you do now? Now, you, now, now if you don't have uh, the right answer, you're toast. So the Sanhedrin's role is going to expand. And what Ezra's going to do, he's going to take this Sanhedrin and temporarily expand it from 70 members to 120 members, right? Called the Anche Knesset Hagadola. Knesset means assembly. Hagadola means a large one. So men of the great assembly, large or great. Uh, the modern-day Israel modeled their Knesset after the Anche Knesset Hagadola, the, the, the men of the great assembly. So they, too, also have 120 members in Israel's parliament. How did they pick 120? I don't. I don't know what the story was in the. Uh, um, Did Moses live to be 120? Yeah, it's a good number in, in Judaism, but it's 120 members. I, I don't know what the rationale was behind that. Um, there's actually, um, interestingly, there's debates as to was it a uh, continuous, continuously 120, or was it just a group of 120 members and then they didn't, re- they didn't refresh those numbers. Uh, there's this one scholar that wrote a whole book. Um, 
claiming from Jewish sources, not like uh, uh, that the, the men of the Great Assembly were just 120 individuals, and then when they died, they weren't replaced. So um, the last of their members was just, he was just the last remaining. So Shimon Otsanek, you know, the name that we're associated with as the last or the remnant of the men of the Great Assembly, he was actually the last guy. Uh, but we have names, people like uh, Ezra, for example, um, Daniel, Daniel, Haggai, all these names. Mordechai was part of the Knesset uh, Gadola. Zerubbabel, who led the first expedition back from Babylon, he was also a member of the uh, Great Assembly. So what was, was what was that? So they're dealing now with a major shift. Probably, we could say, um, I don't know. If, we can point to certain times in history where there's going to be a major change in the direction and kind of the way of life of the Jewish people. And thankfully, the Jewish people were always blessed um, with leaders that had, that had foresight and that were able to foresee what's going to happen. You know? Later on in the story, we read the, 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 the writing of the Mishnah. The writing of the Mishnah. Now, to actually write down the Mishnah, we'll get to what the Mishnah is, and hopefully if you have time today, maybe we'll do it. But to write down the Mishnah, it's a, or to codify the Mishnah, to canonize the Mishnah, that was, that's an, that's a, um, an act that's prohibited by Jewish law. Torah says, oral law is called oral law because it's oral. Hence the term. But if you go into any Jewish bookstop in the world, you can find copies of the oral law. Wait a minute, if it's oral, why is it written? So that was a decision made um, roughly 1,800 years ago by a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, otherwise known as Rabbi, just Rabbi. You open the Talmud and say, Rabbi, said, which Rabbi? There's so many Rabbis we're talking about. Just Rabbi is Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he is, uh, he was the leader of the people um, during uh, the one of the most tumultuous uh, centuries in Jewish history, the second century of the Common Era, a time where we had uh, the, um, we had the, uh, what was the name of the, I'm trying to remember the name of the Roman emperor who um, became emperor in the year 117. Oh, gosh, it starts with an H. I can't remember. So that was when they made they made prohibitions against study of Torah. Like, can you imagine, like you, you the only way Jewish people survive if if the Torah survives. The second we lose our Torah, we lose our thing that makes us unique and special, and we're done. And with the Romans tell us, if you study Torah, if you if you have a Torah convention of any sort. We're gonna we're gonna just slaughter all of you. That's what they did. So it was a very tumultuous and challenging time, especially when you take into account the local leaders and their prohibitions against Torah study, and dispersal amongst uh, a multitude of places, and losing of the central authority, disbanding of the Sanhedrin. So he made this decision, and he saved Judaism. Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly kind of also were doing the same thing. They were dealing with a new reality, a new Judaism. Right. There's no no longer are we going to have uh, kings from monarchs, absolute rulers from the house of David will meet the Hasmonean kings, but they weren't even legitimate kings because they were not from the temp- the tribe of Judah. And they were instead they were Kohanim, as we know. We're going to have a, a Judaism has become a non-profit organization. No more prophets. No more prophets. No more direct link with God. Uh, we're going to have a second temple, which was basically a shell of the first temple. The vessels of the first temple, most of them weren't there, right? The ark is the ark of the famous ark from Raiders of the Lost Ark, we all know, right? Uh, so that ark uh, was only in the first temple. So you have a temple of 400 years and there's no ark. So one of the basic uh, fundamental vessels of 
the temple and the Holy of Holies where the Kohen Gadol goes in Yom Kippur. And the second temple, all they had was a little little stone, little called Evan Shesias in the Mishnah on Yoma. Right? And there are those that say, uh, that theorize, they have all these, uh, that that stone is the same stone in the Dome of the Rock. The problem is, is that according to the Mishnah, it says it was only three Tvachim tall, which is Yeh tall, and the one in, in the, on, Mount, on Temple Mount is about, what, 20 feet tall or something like that. So that's, that's a question. But either way, it's a different temple. Right? There's no mir- no open miracles. There's uh, uh, corruption of the high priesthood. Right? They're going to start selling the high priesthood to the highest bidder. Uh, uh, we, uh, in the first temple, we have uh, 18, 18 high priests. That's it. Over about 400 years. So did the, the ark get taken by the... So what happened to the ark? So there's different theories. Actually, the Talmud talks about what happened to the Ark. It says that, uh, according to one theory, it was... Let's see, put this down here. Um, according to one opinion of the Talmud is with the Babylonians. They came, they ransacked, and they just took it. And according to the other opinion, it is King Josea, one of the last, last of the kings of the First Temple uh, period, he hid it somewhere. And in fact, there's this legend that... This one priest in the second temple, he saw this loose stone somewhere in the temple mount, and he moved it outside, and he saw like the ark there, and he went and started telling his friend and died. That's the legend. Uh, whether it happened or not, it's not clear. But either way, um, we don't know exactly uh, where it is. It's gone. Isn't, isn't there an archaeological freeze? Well, the Arch of Titus is talking about that's the menorah. The, the menorah. There is the ark. Uh, no, but remember the menorah. The, 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 in the second temple, they had the menorah. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so so that was one of the vessels they did have. Yeah. Uh, and when Titus destroyed the second temple, so every the way the Romans did it is they established like this big monument, this ark, you know, mm-hmm. that we call the Arch of Titus, um, in Rome. And in it, they have it's etched in the stone. You can go see it today. Mm-hmm. It's etched a picture of them carrying this massive menorah. So is that the menorah or not? Did the Vatican have it? Well, either way, it's clearly the Vatican doesn't have it because they, you know, the Rome was was sacked one year in the in the sixth uh, century. So it's probably it's probably not there. But there, um, there are those that point out if you look at the actual menorah on the Arch of Titus, if you look at it, you'll see that there's images on the base of the menorah. So the menorah has a base, and then it has the one, and then it comes out the menorah, right? Uh, so on the actual base of that, there's uh, there are these images, and imagery is always linked with paganism. So like the the, the Ten Commandments says, don't make any images, you know, because images are always linked with idolatry. So the notion that the temple the, the temple vessel of the menorah would have an images on it on its base is very strange. Uh, so there are lots of different theories. There are those that say that there were multiple menorahs that had like a fake one and a real one, and they they hid the hid the real one, but left the fake one there. I had a we had a uh, somewhat of a uh, eccentric neighbor growing up, who uh, <laughs> he uh, he decided that the menorah was in the Vatican. He basically made a trip and he went to the Vatican and was like stood on the door like not and says where's where's our menorah. I don't know what he did, or what the, but he basically went on some sort of pilgrimage to go reclaim the menorah. <laughs> Very bizarre. Um, uh, he didn't get arrested, no. He might have. I don't know. Yeah. And he was eccentric. He still is, but yeah. he moved out. 
<laughs> so let me just ask a question, just so I, just to wind back a little bit. Um, you know, I guess modern anti-Semitism relates to Christianity and Gospels and that depiction of what happened to Jesus. And but when we talk about the Romans and before Christianity and banning Torah reading and stuff, what was that? Was did they see the Jews as a political threat or a, or a military threat? So there's a f- or were they just different? And so that's why the Romans uh, passed those edicts. What was the so basis? you're saying like you're but there's a premise in your question, right? What's the premise of the question? That anti-Semitism is only because of the um, the um, uh, claim of deicide. We killed their god, right? Which is bizarre if you think about it. Like, okay, if he's really a god and we killed him, then well, he probably has a say in the matter. Either way, but that's not the only reason why, or not the only excuse to for anti-Semitism. Um, Non-Christians have also um, been really bad to the Jews over the past thousand years. Uh, there's other reasons given why uh, oh, Jews dominate the world or Jews mess, mess, you know, control the economy. Jews are different. State, state theory, there's multiple different theories given as to why Jews are hated. Uh, and the Jewish theory as to why Jews are hated is that it's, it has nothing to do with any of the excuses given, rather because it's a method of ensuring Jewish survival. That if Jews are beloved, well, then there's their risk for assimilation. Right, that's the Jewish. That's the Jewish theory. And in fact, the Talmud says that Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, the word Sinai is very similar to the word Sinah. Sinah means hatred. And the Talmud says is that at the time of Mount Sinai, they got Sinai, they got hatred, which means that as at the formation, the establishment of the nation, there's something about a Jewish nation that was instilled or infused in the Jewish people at Sinai. This hatred, because as a safety gap, a safety measure to ensure that the Jewish people will forever remain a, an eternal nation and never lose their identity and lose their special status as a Jewish people. That's uh, the Jewish theory. Now, as to why the Romans and the Greeks and the Babylonians, I'm saying, you look at uh, times where they banned, uh, so let's say you start with, uh, with Antiochus, right? Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the one who first made the ban against circumcision, against observing the Shabbat, against kosher laws, laws of Jew- Jewish ritual purity. Right? You study Torah, we're going to kill you. Right? That's when, and that basically was the <clears throat> the background that uh, the Maccabean revolt um, was. Um, you know, well, that was the background. That was the, that was the story. Uh, they they came after the Jewish people not only for their land and. You know, to conquer them, but also to control them religiously. Why he did that? So you know, you could say that it wasn't necessarily out of anti-Semitism. It was out of it was out of a it was out of a uh, an attempt to control them or attempt to subjugate them, an attempt to uh, assimilate them into Hellenism because the Jews. Being different, they always rebelled. Jews rebelled more than anyone. You know, the Jews constantly rebelled. The Romans, 500 years of domination. No one had an In human history, not before, not, not since, has there been an empire as dominant as the Romans. Not the United States, not Imperial England, no one. Not the Ottoman, nobody. And the Jews rebelled more than anyone else. Jews revolted all the time. The Jews were volatile. Today we think of Jews as being, you know, uh, like uh, dentists. And really calm, easy going. The Jews were maniacs in ancient in ancient times. The Jews didn't care. 
they, they would go up. You look at the Maccabeans. They went up, according to the sources that we have from the Book of the Maccabees. They were, they were outnumbered four or five to one in most battles. But they were, they were animals. They were animals. They were crazy. They didn't care. They didn't care about dying. What do you do? That's like the most volatile a subject you could possibly have. So a lot of the um, uh, ancient attempts at at at, at restricting restricting Jewish practice was also a, a method a method of ensuring kind of the viability of your own conquer uh, you know your your own control and conquering of, of of that of that nation because if the second you say Jews oh we're no different than anyone else like you know the Jews that unfortunately become Hellenized we'll get to them then well they don't revolt and you don't have to send and the Romans also the Romans said had as many people controlling tiny Judah Judea as they had in you know India and we see this also in, in the British mandate British mandate you know they had um the in the in the four nineteen forties, you know, they had to uh, dedicate so much resources to controlling Israel because they were the Jews were very prone to uh, rebelling and to revolting and to you know terrorizing them or legitimately or illegitimately, whatever the reason is. But that's the reality, uh, and that's the way the Jews were. So yes, it could have been a religious ban, but it was also political. Uh, politi- politically, if you take the Jews and you make him Greek, you Hellenize them. Well, then they'll be very happy that you control them. If you make them Roman, like, and that's what ancient, ancient empires what they did. You know, they they came, they saw, and they conquered. Right? <laughs> they came, they conquered, and then they also infused the nation that they conquered, the subject nation, with their way of life. So they became Roman citizens and Roman subjects, and then what happens? They pay taxes and live and let live, and they live, you know, and 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 and, 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 and everything everything works. Uh, if you have a stubborn people, Jews are renowned for their stubbornness. That um, are no, it's true. The Torah says the Torah calls us a stiff net. We're stiff net people. We're stubborn. Um, you know, the Jews rebelled against Moses many times. It's true, because we you know we, we you know we. We're, st- we're stubborn. That's maybe perhaps our best and perhaps also our worst quality. Don't give up. We don't give up. We're relentless. Right? We bend. got that from Abraham. Abraham was stubborn. Abraham was relentless. Everyone, everyone didn't stop and say, you know what, I'm facing so much opposition, maybe I should just go live a quiet life. You know, become... <laughs> Such a violent group of people, but yet in the U.S., before Six-Day War or whatever, we were considered like meek and uh, weak and, you know, yeah, um, you could say that, but remember, we we don't in the U.S. The Jews don't have a sense of national, you know, nationalism, you know, and it's within us. Yes, it's within us. Uh, so perhaps uh, you know we're we're vocal about other things, you know, we're vocal and we're relentless about other things as well. Um, but it's within the Jewish character to uh, fight for what you believe in. Uh, so in ancient times, that meant fighting for a Jewish. Um, independence and Jewish revival and Jewish continuity, and that's what we did, and we did it ferociously. Do you think that the Holocaust brought the Jewish community closer together? Oh, what a question, huh? Yeah, what a question. Uh, do I think that the Holocaust brought the Jewish uh, community together? Well, I, I think that it shattered a fantasy of us just becoming like everyone else. It's, it shatters the fantasy of the Jewish people not being different. 
Did it bring them together? I'm saying it's it's the most traumatic event to happen to our people probably ever. Uh, I'm saying up there with the, you know, the the slaughter at the hands of the Babylonians or the hands of the Romans and being dispersed and being misplaced and being you know set out and exiled throughout the world. But it's it was it was a it was a tr- it was a tragedy of epic proportions, obviously. Did some good come out of it? I'm saying you could legitimately argue that the state of Israel wouldn't have happened without the Holocaust. I think that's a legitimate argument. Um, it's just, I'm saying obviously it's a sensitive topic. Yeah, but remember, but that's not that's not that's not that's not after that's not post Holocaust. That's that's nineteenth century. The 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 worst century in probably all of Jewish history for Jewish assimilation was the nineteenth century. Uh, You know, you had uh, wholesale um, wholesale assimilation, um, wholesale conversion to Christianity. You know, those things that were that were never even you know you you always had Mm -hmm. rebels. But it was never on such a wide scale. So maybe we'll get there. I'm saying it's it's it's, and it's no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It's a good question. It's a legitimate question. But as we know, like if you look, if you have if you have the gift of retrospect in history, you if you're able to see a 200 year view of what's happening, right? You get you're able to gain much more perspective. You know, if if it was 1844, uh, and we were in Brunswick, Germany, right? And we would be having this discussion. We wouldn't be able to see clearly what's actually happening, no. uh, but because we don't see the factors, and we you know we don't see how we don't have that you know that broader vision. Mm-hmm. Now we could say you know there's a there's a, a whole bunch of things that kind of collided, and you know history is a buildup. You know big major events in history happen as a result of buildup that could take off in a hundred years. So at the time you don't see it. Uh, but we talk about, let's say, the destruction of, of the Second Temple. We talk about it as a buildup of Sinat Chinam. The Talmud says, why, why was the Second Temple destroyed? Sinat Chinam. Hatred of, costless hatred of one Jew to another. And if you look at it now, we already see, already from uh, 200 years before the destruction of the Second Temple, we already see factionalism, sectarianism, infighting, discord amongst the Jewish people internally. That ultimately brings about the Romans destroying the temple after the Great Revolt, the year 66, right? But now we can see that. Now we have that perspective. Similar thing, we talked about the 19th century being a challenging, very challenging. It's, it was a buildup in the 17th and 18th century. And what happened to the Jewish people internally, but also what happened to the rest of the world, right? We have the Renaissance bringing upon the Enlightenment, and Jewish people were granted, overnight granted, citizenship, they were allowed to, to own land. They were uh, not, uh, um, at least not from a governmental standpoint, they weren't marginalized socially or economically. You let her go to universities. You let her, let her go live in England. Ain't that nice, right? So overnight, the Jewish people were just 
granted access to all everything that the secular world has to offer. No longer were they confided to to ghettos. No longer were they restricted from owning land or from engaging in many practices. So there's obviously oh. You know, we used to be Jews. We're different. We look different. We dress different. We have different practices. We have to speak different religion. We speak a different language, right? The Jewish people spoke Yiddish. Uh, and now suddenly we're allowed to do whatever we want. You know, the the world is open to us. Uh, a lot of people took that as a, uh, you know, but we can't go to the universities looking all different, looking all weird. You know, let's meet them halfway. You know, let's be a little bit, you know, more liberal with, or, or, or you know, liberal with our... Uh, acceptance of of secular influence, of non-Jewish influence, and, you know, let's change our names and change our identity and this and that. Eventually, that leads to wholesale rejection of Jewish identity. You know? That's just, you know, that, that's been the basic progression of what happened. You know? Oh, it can only be accepted if I'm a Christian. Okay, I'll become a Christian, you know? And I'm saying that's also predicated on the fact that internally... Uh, perhaps the Jewish communities themselves didn't do enough to foster a feeling of, you know, a special feeling of what it means to be Jewish. You know, if we don't tell our kids how special it is to be Jewish, on one hand, on the other hand, they see that, hey, this club is only open to non-Jews. Or, you know, this is, I, if I come with my kippah, my tzitzit, they're going to look at me strange. If those two things kind of go together, you don't know why you're Jewish. You don't know why it's special, what it means, you know, the value of being Jewish. And being Jewish is going to hinder your, you know, your, your development or your progress or your, your opportunity in the greater world. Well, then, in all likelihood, you'll make that decision to reject it. Why would you, uh, why would you um, tenaciously hold something that's just, you, have, you don't accord any value or little value to, uh, and, it's, and it's, it's preventing you from doing what you want to do? Yeah. Forty some over four thousand French are leaving. They've already immigrated. No, there's still about six hundred thousand French. Yeah, what's clear to us the from billionaires are coming to the United. There was an article where they had like fifty-seven uh, billionaires, French billionaires, coming to Jewish, coming to the United States. Uh, a lot have gone to Israel also. Oh, Israel, yeah, but these were the billionaires. These were the, the richest people, the well, richest Jews. Yeah, well, a lot. Of, I'm saying also there's the the the, the, you know, the French. They're raising the taxes on everyone. They're going. Yeah, you well, know, I mean, that's a different. They're going. To, yeah, they're embracing when socialism. Met, when I in my travels, I've met some French Jews. There's a lot of it. They, yeah, they don't want. They're scared to walk around with kippahs. They have to have guards by their synagogues. I'm saying it's crazy. I, I'm saying to me, I the way I see it is that yes, the, Europe is no longer hospitable for Jews. It isn't. It, it wasn't really that hospitable to begin with. About five years ago, I was in Italy, and we met this Jewish family from Munich. Yeah. And his father was in the Holocaust. He was Polish. Yeah. And after the Holocaust went back to Poland, there was so much anti-Semitism, he moved to Munich and raised his family there. There were five years ago, there were about 8,000 Jews in Munich. There are 100,000 Jews in Germany now. No, there's a lot of Jews, a lot of Russian Jews moved to yeah, Germany. Yeah, mostly Russian Jews. The last program in, in uh, Poland was in 1968. Last program. Last program. Last program. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> who knows if there haven't been any since. We don't know about One of the things I see now, though, and I don't know that it's necessarily different, but it's, it's just on my radar, 
and that is a lot of the anti-Semitism is not, there is not a major pushback between the leaders of these countries. I mean, we've seen several things recently in Belgium that just really surprised me. Other countries as well, but it's not low-level people that are, are, um, are do they may be the ones that are doing the violence, but I don't see a big pushback from the leaders. Of the yeah, country. I'm saying That's it, you look at. I'm saying you look. You look at the United Nations. All, what it is basically is United Nations against Israel, right? That's what it is. If not for the United States, uh, Did you read the, even but, 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 I'm saying it's a reality. Okay, you know, we don't have to this, go. First of all, we don't. This, this, the United States was. We don't have to go back that far. You can go back to the 40s and 50s, and until the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. Harvard, Princeton, all the Ivy Leagues, they had hard quotas on Jews. Jews couldn't join certain country clubs in this country. That's why they had to have their own resorts in the Catskill Mounds in upstate New York. So we don't have to go back that far. Now, there wasn't murderous genocide of Jews in the United States, but this country, from a social and educational aspect, was not that hospitable to Jews. And we don't have to go back 30 we don't have to go back 30 yeah. years to find accurate. example after example after example yeah. of that. Now, what That's that caused, true. when those barriers went down, Jews didn't have, you know, there were deed restrictions and other things yeah. like that. Jews could move out of certain areas in Baltimore and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. They could live in certain neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Whether that's good or bad and what that resulted to, but this this country was not all that hospitable to Jews, and it wasn't until the laws were changed to outlaw those sorts of behaviors, and that wasn't until the 1960s. So, so this place, this United States, was not this panacea from, from 1776. I'm nobody saying that, but they're creating this impression here. Yeah, but still, comparatively. So anti-Semitism deserves <laughs> yeah. Judaism. Well, that that that's that's that's, that's the that, that's a theory presented in the Talmud, and and every other theory you're going to, um, you're going. This I think there's officially like six or nine. I remember uh, different theories as to why something exists, and e every single example has a counterexample where that factor wasn't true. Jews are super wealthy. Well, even the Jews were super poor, they were hated. Jews are super poor. Well, even the Jews are super wealthy, they, they face anti-Semitism. You know, non-Christian countries that don't have the, the reason of genocide. You know. Uh, the idea of a scapegoat itself is a proof that, that there's no actual reason, it's just an excuse, right? Uh, Jews control the world's economy. It's also, it's nonsense, I'm saying. it's These are excuses. Um, we have, we're racially different, but, well, uh, you know... We, we, have pretty, we have, for the small percentage that we are, 2% now of the country, or the less, who knows, but uh, we have a tremendous amount of influence. Yeah, well, but that's... But, that, but, that's but remember, that that is not... Limited to you know the United States today, it's been throughout history when Jews were granted the opportunity, they always rose to the top. Uh, we say that that's Abraham's influence, right? Abraham's blood that's within ourselves, which is like we said, the persistence, the um, uh, the determination, but also not being you know being driven and not being content with the status quo. You know, seeing the world in a different way. You know, being being creatively intelligent and trying to imagine a different world. Did you uh, have you read the, the Promised Land by Ari uh, Shavit? No. Uh, it's about Israel from eighteen ninety seven yeah. on. I mean, I'm reading it now because he's going to speak on the sixteenth at the JCC. Okay. And uh, you see, we weren't the great, the nicest people in Israel in the thirties and forties. And, and, I mean, what do you mean? 
what? Yeah, well, the way we treated our, each other. You know, the, there was so much infighting amongst the different groups, the Haganah and the Ergun, and they, they were bombing each other. And, you know, the, the story, the tragic story of the Altalena, you know, the, the Ergun and the Haganah ostensibly had the same mission, which is to establish a state, but they were at such, you know, they were banging with each other, they almost had basically a civil war. And the uh, Ergun arranged for it a ship loaded with weapons and, and uh, just uh, it was rifles and tons of stuff that would have helped them in their underground battle. And, and they shot cannons and, you know, they shot cannons and they sunk the ship and all the people that were swimming to shore, they had them, they were shooting. It's so Jews killing Jews. It's the greatest disaster in history, you know. Terrible things happen like that, yes. And, you know, when, what did David Ben-Gurion say about that, say about that story? Hatotach HaKadosh, he said. Hatotach HaKadosh, which means the holy cannon. He said that, that the cannon that destroyed the ship is the holy cannon, and it should be enshrined in the third temple. That's what David Ben-Gurion said. So yes, is that an example of factionalism and sectarianism in the, amongst the Jewish people themselves? Absolutely. And is that tragic? Absolutely. Against the Arab population, yeah, generally they were fair, and you know, gen- generally, we, you know, okay, so you know, we love to poke holes at the way we treat other yes. people, but the way we get treated is always worse, always. <laughs> Either way, let's get back to the Men of the Great Assembly here. So we see a changing, um, a changing Judaism. We see a Judaism. It's not going to have a temple. It's not going to have prophets. It's not going to have kings from the family of uh, of David. They're going to also see a Judaism now where you're going to have two uh, uh, concurrent communities. You're going to have a community in, in Babylon and a community in, in Israel. No longer, I guess for the rest of the time basically, even to this day, no longer are we going to have the majority of Jewish people living in Israel. I think that's, uh, I don't know, I don't believe we're there yet. But we always had, the majority of Jews were always together. The United States at the times of, of, of Moses and Joshua. Now the majority of Jews are living elsewhere. So what this body was entrusted was with the responsibilities of creating this Judaism that's going to survive um, throughout, 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 the, uh, uh, throughout the history. So the first most important thing that they did was the, to ensure that the oral Torah will exist and continuously exist over exile and chaos. There's going to be a lot of turmoil. Uh, and the way the Jews are going to survive is if they have this kind of portable homeland, which is the way of life, of what it means to be Jewish. Right? which we call the oral Torah. We see this pattern again and again. Whenever the Jewish people are threatened, uh, they're threatened uh, primarily with losing their identity as Jews, losing the Torah, losing the oral Torah. Right? The written Torah is document. Take it with you. But the way of life, the actual way of how Jews live, Exactly. And the second we lose that, then we're done. Because especially when we're in Erzal. So that's, that's what we see the, the, the um, emergence of the Sanhedrin as being a, very, as a focal point of, of Jewish central leadership. Yeah. Is it not Ezra, isn't he the one that tells Jewish men to leave their non-Jewish will? Yes, yes. There's a story of, a, of 112. There were 100 I was and, always bothered by that story. There was 112 um, 112 he came back to Israel, and he, you know, there's 112 men that were intermarried. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, for, you know, to us in America today, you know, where the vast majority of Jews intermarry, it's, it's like nothing. Uh, but that, that's what it's talking about. Uh, it's all, you know, it was a very small amount of Jews, and, and he told them, he said, you know, he, he encouraged them to, you know, you're Jewish, you know. But he also encouraged them to leave their children behind. 
Is that right? Was my understanding that he says to leave those wives and those children behind? I can understand that you should leave the wife behind, but these are your children. How do you do that? Oh, uh, I don't. I, I, I'm. That's your next generation. Yeah, but nine, but ninety percent of the time, if they go with if, if they, well, but if they've got a non-Jewish mother, they're not going to have Jewish kids. And I also, I also, yes. I also think it was a different time. It was a different. It was a different. It was a different time. You know. But I mean, I think even today, like the woman will shape the home and will shape the children, and if she's not on board, those kids are not going to be raised in that. Yeah, and but I think that's why. And then I think also you're looking at at a time where they're still practicing polygamy. Um, women and children are treated more as property than as people, just generally speaking, and that's kind of how the system is. And so if you've got four wives and three or four kids, it's not per wife. It's not like you're going to have the same kind of family relationships that you would have today. You know, how much time did you spend with them? And even though it's unfortunate to just lop a couple off and leave them behind, <laughs> like, but honestly, but, but we do, it is, it is, but, but people, have, but people do this into the modern era. Like this, ha and honestly, this happens all the time. It just doesn't look the same way because we're not looking at it with, with hindsight. But yeah, it's mean, but it makes sense. So, um, there are, I mean, there I are families where the men, the men are Jewish, where they raise the, uh, the kids Jewish. I mean, we it have some, happens. we have, it uh, can, yeah, I mean, it does, it does Trump, happen. But. Ivanka, well, she converted. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, Clinton's kids are, uh, she yeah. did not convert. No, but I think they're, they're Either way, so one of the things that the uh, men of the Great Assembly did, no way, we're getting through this all today, <laughs> codifying the Siddur, prayer, right? They formalized prayer, the prayer that we have today with the Amidah, and everything, oh, that was all, that's the product of uh, the men of the Great Assembly. Why did they do that? What was it before then? Remember, prayer is a mitzvah in the Torah. One of the 632 mitzvahs in the Torah is to pray. According to Maimonides, it means to pray every day. According to Nachmanides, it means to pray at times of need. Either way, there's a, there's a Torah mitzvah, commandment to pray. What they did was they made a formalized, structured the prayer. They made, they made that now everyone prays uh, together, communal prayer, Every day at set times. And the reason why they did this was, number one, because the Jewish people relaxed and say, oh, yeah, of course, I'll, of, course I'll, of course I pray. But not every day or whatever. People, you know, people uh, weren't kind of fulfilling it in the ideal sense because in the ideal sense, prayer is man talking to God. That's it. What language? Whatever language they're comfortable with. What do they say? Whatever they're feeling. That's what prayer is really all about. And that prayer still exists. But they mandated that, that, that at least a... Uh, a, a formalized pray, uh, prayer will uh, uh, will happen every day because that's you know that because otherwise some people wouldn't pray at all. Additionally, they did this prayer as a uh, compensation for the loss of sacrifices. You know, they modeled the prayers after the sacrifices in the temple, so that the Jews who are in Babylon, they're far away from the Jewish central. Um, central leadership, basically, in Jerusalem. The whole temple is this idea that maybe they'll make a pilgrimage, hopefully they'll make a pilgrimage. But they have this, their own life. 
and Judaism and its ideals when the Jewish people are united in Israel and they have a temple and the temple kind of serves as the epicenter of the Jewish world. So what they did is they formalized the prayer in the way that during the prayer you're basically mimicking what's happening at the temple concurrently and that the Jewish people throughout the world until this day we have that association with the temple because the morning prayer corresponds to the morning sacrifice, afternoon prayer, evening prayer. On Shabbat we have the Musaf prayer and we talked about, uh, we kind of basically try to relive what it was like in the temple. So there, during the temple years there was prayer every day. I mean, the, First and second temple, we were talking about. Yeah, first, well, we'll start with the first. Well, yeah, but it wasn't formalized. Okay. It wasn't formalized. So, so everyone was praying on their own. Okay. Everyone was doing whatever, everyone was praying in their own form, in their own language, by themselves. But you have the central temple. Right? Yeah, the central temple was a united, uniting force, and the Jewish people all lived there. So it was, you know, so it was much, they, you know, they were much more united. And constant sacrifice, all day long. Well, yeah, but there's also the morning, then the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, what the men of the Grand Assembly tried to do was create a thriving people out of the ashes of what was Judaism in its ideal sense. Was now, period, kind of? we're talking about the year 350, basically. That's what I thought. Yeah, uh, before the Common Era. With formal prayer, you say, wait a minute, I'm going to say the same prayer, the same words every day, multiple times a day for decades. What they tried to do was create kind of the, like the multivitamin. You know, they created a prayer that has all the aspects, all the facets of, uh, of man's relationship and man's request from the Almighty. And there's also room to ad-lib. So say whatever you want, you know, kind of insert your own prayers, your own language. That's always encouraged. I always tell people, forget about the prayer book. Forget about the talit. Forget about the synagogue. Forget about Hebrew. Prayer means talking to God like you would talk to your fellow. Like you would talk to your friend. You would confide in your friend. You would seek the advice of your friend. You would kind of pour out your heart to, to the you know, friend you're close with. Do that to God. Right? God is your billionaire dad who wants nothing more than having a relationship with you. Right? He wants you to ask you for what you need. He wants to develop a relationship with you. That's what, that, that's what it is. So if you're, you're in your car and the radio went to commercial break, turn it off a little and talk to God in English. Right? You're walking from your cubicle to the water cooler Talk to God. In what language? In the language you're most comfortable with. God understands English probably as well as you do. <laughs> so that's prayer. Another major thing that they did, canonization of the Jewish Bible. We're reaching the point in time where prophets are not going to uh, exist any longer. How many prophets were there? According to the Talmud, there were millions of prophets. And probably lots of prophets wrote lots and lots of documents. So, Jewish people always literate, Jewish people always writing, Jewish people always, Jewish prophets always castigating. What do you have? Wait, we have to create this one corpus of Jewish writings. Right? So, what they did is they canonized the, they canonized the, uh, the, uh, the Torah, the, the, the Tanakh, the Bible. So, they had to sift through and edit and kind of the best. Uh, job that they did was to go through everything and find, you know, the 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 prophets that are most applicable. You know, the three major prophets, right? Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, and that became part of the corpus of of, of the Jewish uh, Jewish books. And everything else was not included in the Bible. You know, they include the last book that they included was the book of Esther. Esther was the book that was written by Mordechai, who was a member of this great body as well. He, uh, it was only 15 years earlier we had written the book, and that was the last one that was included. 
You have like the book of the Maccabees, which is also a book written by you know by it was chronicling the story of the of Hanukkah that was written you know about uh, you know 180 years later. Well, I don't know if we know exactly who wrote it. Um, it was written 100 year, 180 years later, but that was already after the books were already set in stone, and it wasn't included. It's, in, it's part of the Christian Bible because Christian Bible kind of incorporates everything. Old Testament. Okay, sorry, Catholic Bible. Sorry, um, uh, you know. Then and the Jewish Bible became like kind of the Old Testament, and then there's the New Testament. Do you want the New Testament? <laughs> Ooh. going to be a speaker at this this book fair. Uh, about those things that didn't get into the Bible that sh- they're, they're not in Scripture that should have been. Mm. Well, so there were other things that weren't included, but like um, like the book of Ben Sira, mm-hmm. the book of Ben Sira, which, huh? The book of Enoch. Oh, yeah, well, I'm saying, I'm sure there were probably hundreds of books, but the Talmud always talks about this book of Ben Sira. It was this, like, this mm-hmm. very interesting, bizarre book uh, that... The Talmud has like this uh, tormented relationship with, because on one hand it kind of like brings it in a positive light, on the other hand it talks kind of negatively. But it was a very popular book; it was a Jewish book of Jewish origin. But they didn't decided deliberately not to include it in the Jewish Bible. So that was the decision decisions of uh, of these uh, of these of these groups. Now, also at this point in time, once we have no longer have prophets. We no longer have kind of basically united Israel in Israel, you know, with great strong leadership. We're going to also open up our um, community, our people, our nation to schisms, to offshoot religions, to breakaways, to people kind of rejecting basic tenets of Judaism. Uh, most popular amongst those is is rejection of the oral Torah. The rabbis invented it all. It's all an invention. So we meet like the Sadducees. We're going to meet them really soon. They were a group of people who came from a student of Antigonus Ish Soko. He was the Nasi. He was the president of the Jewish people. He was the Avbetin. He was the the the, the um, probably what we call the chief justice of the Sanhedrin. And he had these two students. One of them his name was Tzadok. One of them his name was Baitos. And they rejected each on their own kind of his teachings. And they said, oh, the rabbis invented it, uh, the whole thing. There's no life after death. Like, there's no soul. There's no uh, immortality. And there's no consequences. And all we have is a written Torah. And that's a common schism. We see this again and again where you have kind of the breakaways from the, uh, the mainstream, whether it be the Essenes. We'll meet them a little later. The Sadducees. We'll meet them right now. The Karaites of the ninth century, the Karaites of the ninth century, they kind of all fall, fall, uh, you know, follow the same model, not to reject the actual written Torah, the five books of Moses, and that whole narrative and that whole, you know, all those. They 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 embrace that. What they do is reject what they uh, would call the oral Torah, kind of the interpretation of that. Uh, so that's why you'll, if you ever see anyone wearing tefillin between their eyes like that, because it says you wear tefillin between your eyes. You should put your film between your eyes. That's the way I wear it because it's loose. And I've been doing that for 60 years. Uh, that's that hilarious. <laughs> so, but filling were always worn over here, between your eyes, which means centered, between your eyes, right? But on top of your head. What they say is they take it in the literal sense. So they, they, would, they would wear film like this. 
I was in an airplane with the chief rabbi of Israel of El Alice's. Who's this? Uh, years ago. I don't know. Ten, rabbi Lau? I don't remember now what his name But anyway, he's moving lights. <laughs> you know, you get up in the morning and everybody runs to the front of the airplane. And he's moving lights still. And oh, that's oh, hilarious. That's fantastic. <laughs> that was right after a big Jerusalem uh, shooting. Everybody was on the plane the next day. Uh, in 1993, Rabbi Israel Meir Lau became the chief rabbi, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi. In 2003, it's always 10-year uh, increments. 2003, Rabbi Yona Metzger. No, no, it was in the between 93 and So was Rabbi Lau, probably. Yeah. And now his son, Rabbi David Lau, he's now the chief rabbi. That was, well, you know, and he's rabbi, 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 the original Rabbi Lau Senior. He's a, he's the rabbi of Tel Aviv, chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. That's that's a fantastic story. That's all I do in Judaism, except come to these things. You watch film every day. Fantastic. So um, the groups like the Sadducees, they only um, believed in a written Torah, which ironically is impossible because take the example of Tefillin. Tefillin says we're Tefillin. More precisely, we're Totafot. It doesn't tell you what it looks like. Right. So if you just take the written document, you'll have a very uh, uh, conflicted or like you won't know what to do because the book itself is clearly an imperfect document on its own. Uh, we're totafot. What does totafot mean? What does it look like? Right. So ironically, they have to develop their own oral Torah, their own oral traditions. So it's actually not possible to have it without an oral tradition. So what's ironic, you have like, there's still like, I think there's still one Karite temple. There's like, like 10,000 Karites to the left. Uh, you know, we think of the Karaites as an afterthought, but in the ninth century, a third of Jewish people were Karaites. It was hugely popular. Where were they? Were they everywhere? Were they in Israel? It must have been must, must have been in either in Europe or. In, I didn't know anything about. It. I don't know. It was a, it was an American Idol or something. There was a Karaite Jew who came in like second or third. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a it's temple. There's in in Los Angeles. There's one more one, but it's it's dead. It's it's dead. Uh, but it was hugely popular and. Uh, but it's also it's impossible to have a practice of Judaism without an oral Torah because, like I said, tefillin doesn't say how what tefillin is. Or slaughter, kosher slaughter. It's not, well, kosher close, slaughter. It's, an, it's a great example because in Deuteronomy chapter specifically, do it in the way that I've told you. Exactly, but cha- uh, write it down anywhere. Yeah. Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verse twenty-one. It talks about when you want to eat food, not in a sacrifice setting, but you want to eat food because you want to eat, have a burger, right? Mm-hmm. So you slaughter it the way as I instructed. Mm-hmm. And if you look everywhere throughout the whole written document, it doesn't say anywhere how, how the Almighty instructed it. So obviously there was some instruction. The body of knowledge that's right. So that's, so that's one of the classical proofs from the actual written document that there's some other oral um, instruction. Is the man that does that ritual slaughter, is he called a shloshek? Shochet. Shochet. No need to gesture on your on yourself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, is that what you did? Oh, I couldn't think of how to explain it. Yeah. That is like so clear. <laughs> so that's one example. Another example is at the end of the book of Mishpatim where it talks about Amalek. It says, Ksozot Besefer Vesimbos Neoshua. The Almighty instructs Moses, write this in a book and tell it in the ears of Joshua. So it taught, we see this duality of this multiple instructions uh, in a written document, but also in an oral instruction. Now remember, 
not only not only is it written in the book itself that there is an oral component to it, like in the example you brought, the example I brought, uh, and not only is it impossible to actually understand what it is that you uh, that you have to do unless there's an oral component, like we said, like what does it mean? Observe the Shabbos, don't do any work. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What is what what what? Yeah. Well, it, Kindle Fire is the only one that it says explicitly, but it says don't do work. And now the Talmud says, well, it says that right next to, juxtaposed to the to the um, to the requirement of building the temple, mm-hmm. right? Build a temple. Don't do building the temple on Shabbat. That's what it says. Build a temple. Don't do work on Shabbat. Build a temple. Don't do the building of the temple on Shabbat. So it's indicating by juxtaposition that anything that is required to build a temple is not done on Shabbat. That's why if you open up the book of Shabbat in the oral law, when it was written down, it talks all about where these 39 categories of work, how they applied in the, in the temple. You know, part of the temple was baking bread. So anything that involved baking bread from the uh, from the uh, sowing of the of the uh, of the field and the planting and the watering and the harvesting and the, right till the actual baking, all that is part of what happened. exactly. You didn't say how they wrote down the oral law when it, when the Torah says you shouldn't write. Down. So that's an example of uh, of overlooking one small principle of Judaism to save Jews, Judaism in its entirety. Well, it's 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 the the Talmud and Gittin brings a verse. Um, I, I don't remember the exact verse. I can get that for you if you would like. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, I, I would I would lean towards if it doesn't say in the written Torah that you can't write down the oral Torah, then why not write down the oral yes, Torah? Yes, yes. But remember, there's uh, okay. So this is another important point. Okay, we're getting so sidetracked. The oraita, the oraita. The oraita. Oraita is the Aramaic word for, for Torah. Uh-huh. So the oraita, which means from the Torah. So like like yeah. when we talk about a mitzvah, a commandment that's from the Torah versus let's say rabbinic edict, mm-hmm. one be called the oraita from the Torah and one be the rabbanan from the rabbis. Mm-hmm. right? Because the rabbis are instructed with putting a fence around the Torah. So that's why the other rabbis say don't, don't handle a pen on Shabbat because a pen is only used for one thing and that's a prohibited act on Shabbat, writing. Yeah. So that would be a rabbinic prohibition. Uh, but why was it oral to begin with? You know, this is a great question. Just write it down. Isn't that simpler? Isn't that isn't that a better way to ensure that it will not be corrupted? Well, yes. Okay. Unless you just unless Moses would write it down. Remember. All the oral Torah we say is an oral Torah from Moses, right? From Sinai. What were they doing at Sinai? They were studying Torah. What kind of Torah? They didn't have the written Torah all the way to the end, right? At the, the, the you know the the weeks before Moses died is when he actually gave the Jewish people the actual scrolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened till then was that they were studying Torah. Well, what, what were they studying? They were studying the oral Torah. What it, what it means to be Jewish, you know? Mm-hmm. What it means to where it sits it, you know? What it they means. Also well, they heard, but they heard what they hear. They heard the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are are, are, are just the, the principles, right? Maybe the uh, the foundations of 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 the whole Torah, but not the actual applications of all the mitzvahs and every, all the particular aspects of all the mitzvahs. That was all given by oral instruction. But why was it oral? Just write it down. So there's a few answers. Number one, if it's written down, then it's in the hands of 
Gentiles. And as we'll see later on, when the Torah was actually translated, the Septuagint is considered a day of tragedy in the Jewish people. Uh, when the, the Telemai, the second, right, invited with quotation marks, or more precisely, forced 70 rabbis individually to write down the Torah in Greek, the first translation of the Torah, it's a day of tragedy. Why? Now the Gentiles will use the Torah against us. Until this day, you know, people say, oh, the Torah says this, the Torah says that, and once it's in the hands of Gentiles, they can use it against us. Additionally, the Torah is kind of uh, the, the verse in, 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 uh, at, the end of, um, at the end of Deuteronomy, right? Torah was instructed us by Moses. It is a birthright of the Jewish people. It's ours, right? It's not, it's not meant for the whole world. You know, the, we have a universal vision, but the Torah is, is instruction of the Jewish people. It's not for everyone. You want to join the Jewish people? You're welcome. Right? We have we embrace converts. And we have uh, um, throughout history, but the Torah itself is for Jews. But the real, most important reason why we uh, kept Torah oral was because that is the best way. Or having this duality of an oral and a written Torah, it's the best way to ensure that the whole corpus of of Jewish knowledge will be transmitted accurately. How so? If you have documented, everyone here, who here went to uh, some form of higher, higher learning after uh, high school? Everyone went to college here of some, some, some sort? Everyone, to, everyone went to school. Why do you go to school to learn from, why don't you just like do uh, University of Phoenix online? They didn't have that. Oh, they didn't have that, okay. <laughs> but the reason why you go to school and you hear from an instructor because an instructor, oral instruction is much more effective in actually communicating the principles um, then reading from the book. Why? Because first of all, there's no inflection. It's interactive. It's interactive. There's dialogue, right? right? Uh, if I say, I, I always do this example. I don't know if I did this exercise with you guys. Just this exercise. If I haven't done it, if you have done it, then just stop me in my tracks. I'm going to tell you guys a sentence. You guys tell me what it means. Ready? I. Did I do this with you or? I didn't. I guess no, I didn't. I don't see how it's going to go wrong. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I did not hit my wife. What does that mean? I did it with you guys? Yes. Yeah, we did that. Oh, we did it, okay. We did it? Yeah. That means you didn't hit her, but you probably... Whoa, 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 no, no. If I said I did not hit my wife, it means I didn't hit my wife. That's what it means. But if I said I didn't hit my wife, it Someone means else. I didn't hit my wife. I didn't hit my wife. I just gave you the same words, but with an oral in, with an oral instruction, you have the ability of inflection, you have the ability of that dialogue, and then you're able to just communicate much more. It gives you context. Gives you. Now remember, the written Torah is there to ensure that if your oral tradition doesn't fit with the written Torah, then it's discarded. So the written Torah is kind of like the, the framework, like the, you know, the, the lecture notes of the actual instruction. But if your instruction doesn't fit in to the, the, you know, the, the, the written law, the rigid written law, then it's, it has to be discarded because you made a mistake. Because there can never be an incompatibility between the oral Torah and the written Torah. It has to work together. And, it has to, and theoretically, if you just have the written Torah and the rules for deriving the written Torah, Right? The 13th principle of deduction and derivation, I don't know if that's even a word. Derivation. Derivation, thank you. It is a word, thank you. Uh, those principles, you're actually t- able to take the whole Torah and, uh, and derive from it all the laws. So actually the oral Torah is contained with, within the written Torah as well. It's there, but it's not obvious unless you have the tools to, to deduce it. So what we have is that we're able to take the oral Torah as a tradition, plug it back into the written Torah, and actually see how it comes from the written Torah as well.
right? Uh, by uh, the 13 principles. This is also a very fascinating topic. There's 13 principles of derivation and deduction from, from the written Torah. Like if it says a rule, a general rule, and then it has a specific, and then it has an additional rule. So if you have, let's say, a uh, inclusive statement, and then a exclusive statement, followed by an inclusive statement. So there's a whole. So then, what is it? Is it, is it inclusive? Is it exclusive? So what the what, what the rule is that it's inclusive, provided that it's similar to the to the exception, to the exclusive statement. That's an example of. Klal uprat uchalal. You have a general statement, specific statement, then another general statement. Then yes, it applies everywhere, provided that in the model of the example that is in the exclusive example. Sorry if I'm boring you guys with. Uh... Yes, yeah. basically very similar to what. Exactly what it is. Yes, very similar. Um, yeah. Just much more exhaustive. Much more exhaustive, and uh, yeah, and uh, no need of money modifications. Oh, where were we? Okay, so let's let's talk about um, kind of the world at large. So we have the internal challenges that people are going to face. We have this uh, expanded Sanhedrin, men of the Great Assembly. They're going to try to create a Judaism that's going to survive. What's happened in the greater world is that we, during the first temple, we had to contend with the great eastern empires of Assyria, of Babylon, of Persia, and now we're going to have to deal with the great Western empires of Greece, and then the mother of all empires, Rome. Uh, Greece and, or the Greeks, Greek life, Greek culture, and Judaism had actually a lot in common, and on the other hand, were diametrically opposite. And you look at the Talmud, where Talmud talks about Yavan, or Greece, it kind of has, like, mixed messages. On one hand, we're told that there's no Yavan, the verse of the Torah, Yavte Lukim Yefet strong. beauty is to Yefet. Yefet is the, the forbearer of Yavan. Beauty is for Yefet, V'yishton Ba'olei Shem, and will dwell in the house of Shem, which is, which is Israel. This, we have this relationship of this beauty of the Greeks, but we have kind of... in. We accept the beauty of the Greeks in a certain context of the tense of shame. We're told in the Talmud that there's only one language aside from Hebrew where that a Torah scroll is kosher in, and that's the language of Greek. The Talmud lauds the beauty uh, of, of Greek culture, Greek life, and the Greek perspective on things. And we know that you know, the Greeks were very similar to the Jews, that they had an interest in knowledge, they were fascinated by philosophy. We know Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. These are titans of philosophy. And we were like, you know, the one brilliant kid who has to, is surrounded by idiots. You know, that's what we were basically compared, compared, to, our, compared to our neighbors throughout history and, until we meet the Greeks. And this is a nation. And the Greeks also, uh, conversely, they see the Jewish people. Jewish people are like universal literacy uh, you know, obsessed with law and knowledge and philosophy, has a way of thinking, you know, a universal vision. That's what they saw with the Jewish people. So they had this a lot in common on one hand. On the other hand, uh, uh, the Greeks and the Jewish people had diametrically opposite views of, of the world. The Greeks were famous not only for conquering, we'll get to that with uh, Alexander the Great, the greatest 
probably probably their greatest military genius and conqueror in human history. I don't think there's really much of a match anywhere else. You know, in ten years, basically took over the whole world. Ten years, that's it. You know, he died at the age of thirty-two. Thirty-two, he was dead. You know, at the age of twenty, he was ready the 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 emperor and just kind of took it over. Uh, and I don't know what I was just about to say. Alexander the Great. Oh, and when they when they did conquest, it wasn't just about conquering land. It was also about instilling a way of life, the Greek way of life, which is also, we say, similar to the way the Romans did it. The Romans are, are the natural heirs to, to the Greeks in, in, their, in the way of thinking, the way of seeing the world. So they what they would do is not only take over a nation and let it exist as it was previously, but rather they would uh, try to instill it with their way of thinking, Greek culture, which is called... Hellenism, excellent. What is Hellenism? Uh, to put it um, briefly, we would say that Hellenism is uh, a, a worldview where the human is at the center. Humanism, basically, which was be revived much later in history. And that is the idea of, of the beauty, number one, of man. Man, the intelligence of man, the body of man, the idea of, of focusing on who you are and, and, and your, your body and all the Greek physicality, physicality and all the Greek uh, uh, structures that we see today, like all super chiseled, uh, you know, everyone's like, you know, the might and the, everyone's throwing discuses around, you know, they make this gymnasium, the word gymnasium is from the word, the word is gymnos, which means naked. Everything that they did, it was just, you know, because to them, nothing was more beautiful than the human body. And, all their, all their, um, what, no, all their sporting events were held in the nude, you know, because to them that was a beautiful thing. And for us Jews, the very first mitzvah that we have in the Torah is <laughs> circumcision. And this is something to them which is 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 um, to them the human body is sacrosanct, and it's beautiful and sacrosanct. For us, we say that the soul is sacrosanct. The body is a vessel for the soul. Right. To them, everything that is beautiful, everything that is beautiful in your body, that is the final. That's the end. For us, yes, we embrace physicality. We're not ascetic, right? We we don't believe in you know in in uh, self denial. That's not a that's not a Jewish ideal. We embrace the uh, the beauty of of yaf, of yefet, provided it's within a certain context, with a certain perspective of. Of a soul, so we say that we have an internal aspect that they don't have. If you look at the word, the Hebrew word for Greek or Greece, anyone knows what that is? Yavan, the word Yavan. How do you spell that? A yud, which is a straight line, a vav, which is also a straight line, a little bit longer, and a nun sofit, which is even a straighter line. In the Jewish worldview, Greece is organized. It's beautiful, but it has no internalness. Nothing within it. Just, you know, it's all external. You take the word Yavan, you turn it backwards, you have the word Noi. Noi means beauty. Right? That's what they are. It's, it's something beautiful, something fascinating, but they kind of missed the boat. Uh, and they also had this, this they, they also, they, they, to them, the Greeks also obsessed with philosophy, right? Work, right? Uh, and they met. They kind of felt that they met somewhat of their uh, intellectual counterparts within the Jewish people, and this kind of tension uh, that began uh, with the Greeks kind of uh, trying to spread their 
culture throughout the world, but it would reach a certain uh, crescendo, like in the second century before the Common Era. So we think we think about it, Greece now; they're about to conquer the world, uh, and they're going to spread this way of life. And in a couple of hundred years, it's going to actually be a cause of tremendous strife within the Jewish people. They're going to have a civil war, like crazy stuff. We're going to have, obviously, the Maccabean Revolt as a way of kind of um, pushing what would become the Seleucid um, Greeks, the Assyrian Greeks, uh, getting rid of them, getting rid of the way of life, and kind of reestablishing the Jewish way of life and Jewish sovereignty over Israel. You know, it's ironic. (laughs) Irony of all ironies. When the Jews... Conquered, whatever they conquered, did they force conversion? No, Jews. Uh, well, I think there might have been some times where there was forced proselytization. But remember, that's against Jewish law. Right. Uh, so the Edomians, the Edomians, we'll see them later. Right? Herod, remember Herod, Herod the Great. Yeah. Uh, he would be the Roman proxy over uh, proxy uh, procurator. I think the word fancy word is Roman procurator, which is like basically the Roman. Um, emissary to control Judea, he wasn't really technically Jewish. He was from the Edomians. There's a lot of tension between him. Wasn't he a convert, though? So, yes, but it, it's, it was a convert of, of questionable uh, uh, legitimacy. So he tried to bolster his legitimacy by intermarrying with the, with the Hasmoneans. They tried to claim it, you know, stake his claim to Jewish royalty. So, yes, there were some examples, but those are, those are, uh, the, those are the exceptions. Because remember, we don't force conversion. It's against Jewish law. We don't believe that you have to be Jewish to be good. We don't believe that uh, Judaism is for everyone. We believe that Judaism, could, whoever wants to join, is welcome. Uh, but it's not. We don't force it. So back to the Greeks for a second. Uh, oh, oh, irony of all ironies. Yeah. The in Israel, in Israel. And even here, the, the Maccabees is a term for the Israeli sports teams. The Israelis that participate in the Olympics, the Olympics, which is a modern revival of Hellenism, the Israelis call their team the Maccabees when the Maccabees themselves, they came to reject that way of life. Yeah. The Maccabees were the family of uh, the Maccabees. Maccabees is an acronym for Mi Kamocho Be'elim Hashem. Who is like you amongst God, like Hashem, our God? Uh, and that was the rallying cry of the family and eventually the movements that rejected Hellenism and kicked the, the Assyrian Greeks out. And, like, very ironic, a twist of irony, uh, that's the actual name of what's, you know, the Israelis or the Jewish participation in Olympic events. They call them Maccabees. So yes, ironies. So we have Greece, and ancient Greece was, uh, we know the city-states, Athens and Sparta, always fighting with each other. Um, they uh, centers of, of, of culture, of architecture and art and philosophy and drama and all those things. Uh, we say Athens is kind of like it was the epicenter of that and um, Sparta were all the warriors and they take the kids at the age of seven and they could tra- train them to be soldiers and they would deprive them of food and force them to steal, basically create these rugged warriors. Uh, they were always battling within each other. Uh, eventually, a guy by the name of Philip unites Greece and uh, he had conquest and diplomacy and force of personality that he eventually was able to um, 
you know, the Persians, which were at that time the major world empire, they were trying to overcome the Greeks, and eventually, like the big famous Battle of the Marathon, where they were able to repel the uh, the Persians and they're attacking the Greeks, and uh, eventually uh, Philip is assassinated. There are those that say he was assassinated by his son, Alexander. And Alexander was the one who is going to begin this decade of conquest unparalleled uh, in human history. And what he basically did in these 10 years was completely disassemble the entire Persian Empire. Persian Empire dominated the entire world, basically. And this crazy, he was a crazy tactician. He was also out of his mind. He was a maniac. Like he, he didn't like sit in the back. Alexander, he didn't sit in the back and give instructions. He, he went ahead with everyone. He never lost a battle. Never lost. Uh, and he developed, I'm saying we know the Greeks, they had their, their phalanxes. So they had, they developed uh, a pitched, pitched warfare, you know, as opposed to ancient warfare was very, like, highly ritualized. It had, like, our warrior versus your warrior, like the story of David and Goliath, which is basically, he had, like, representatives uh, to kind of fight it out. Uh, the, the Greek method of warfare was, um, they, were, they were all carrying lots of, uh, of armory, lots of heavy machinery, really long spears, really organized, short battles, um, heavy casualties, lots of hacking, lots of really, you know, uh, really um, trying to break the break the the the, um, the center, the strong point. They would always go for the strong point of the of the enemies. Really short battles and move on. So Alexander, great warrior, great genius, military genius, super ego. <laughs> He is taking over the world. Every place he goes, he starts a city called Alexandria. Uh, we'll see that the famous Alexandria in Egypt, famous Alexandria in Egypt actually had an enormous uh, Jewish population over the next hundreds of years. In fact, the Talmud tells us of this synagogue in Alexandria that it was so large that when, that when uh, someone, got, uh, someone said the bracha on the Torah, someone said the blessing on the Torah, no one was able to hear them. They would have to wave like a handkerchief so people would know when to respond with the amains. It was enormous. Uh, so that's Alexandria. And the Talmud tells us a straight story about uh, Alexander's conquest of Israel, of Jerusalem. It was the only time, I think, in history where Jerusalem uh, was captured without a battle. What happened? Or without any bloodshed of any sort. Talmud, this is Talmud in Yom 69a. It says Alexander came to Jerusalem, and uh, the way it was is, you know, with Alexander and especially the pragmatic leaders, so remember Shimon, remember we talked about Shimon, Shimon outside Shimon the Just, who was the last of the men of the Great Assemblies. He was the leader of the Jewish people at the time. So, uh, the pragmatic Jewish leaders always know that if you have, let's say, Rome, or Greece coming to conquer, we don't we don't necessarily want to pick fights. Like to us, it's more important to you know to not lose tens of thousands in massacres to try to maintain our nationhood, but rather to kind of we can have a we can have a nation living under someone else, provided that you know we're we're safe and we have the ability to practice our religion with with freedom, and which was we, you know the Greeks would almost exactly. So he came out to greet. 
Alexander, this is what the Talmud tells the story. And Alexander got off his horse and bowed to him. So, and his general said, you know, Alexander's about to no one. He's super eager and about to no one. Why is he bowing down to Shimon Asad, Shimon Just? And the Talmud says that he told his, uh, he told his generals that every night before his battle, he, uh, he has a dream and he sees this guy and then he's encouraged he's going to win. And that's why he, they, he captured Jerusalem and uh, there was no battle whatsoever. Now, is this story, is it true, is it not, is it historical? That's, I don't think that's really relevant. But what we do see is, we, knew, we know for sure that uh, Alexander's capture of conquest of Jerusalem was done without a battle. There's no battle that we have uh, recorded. Uh, and that he was very favorable to the Jews. And in fact, we know that the name Alexander is a Jewish name. The Talmud says that as a result of, of, of his uh, uh, peaceful conquest of Jerusalem, they pledged that all Jewish boys born subsequently in the upcoming year would be called Alexander. So the, t- the name Alexander, or Sender, is a Jewish name till this day uh, as a result of that. Uh, interestingly, we see after that event, we see that uh, a lot of Jewish people adopting Greek names. You know, so it was a very popular thing. It, perhaps there are those that theorize uh, that as a result of them kind of opening the can of worms to you know say, oh, we'll, we'll name all our kids Alexander. They said, okay, we can name other other, other Greek names are fine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see from then on, you know, just Jews with uh, with Greek names was a very uh, uh, was ubiquitous. Deluge with young children. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so let me let me just let me just let me just let me just wrap up, and we'll know where we're up to here. Uh, Alexander dies at the year at the year um, on the year three twenty three before the Common Era. His empire was so vast; he never actually made it back to Macedonia. He went all the way to India, and uh, just relentless conquest. Everyone, you know, he had a mutiny amongst his amongst his followers, amongst his generals. They wanted to go home after this so much, so much, so much battle. He dies from some sort of an exotic disease. No one really knows what he died from, but uh, his life of uh, he was a famous womanizer, and uh, his life of debauchery was. was uh, just very famous, and it's kind of not surprising he died of some sort of exotic disease. Either way, what's going to happen now is that his empire was so vast that it wasn't. There was no personality that was kind of big enough, or great enough, or powerful enough, or compelling enough to kind of control that. And what you eventually have is basically three separate empires: the Macedonian or Greek proper empire in um, in Greece, the Ptolemaic or uh, Egyptian Empire in the south, Ptolemy, uh, and the Assyrian or the Seleucid Empire in Assyria, basically in in, in further east. So in uh, what we call Persia, Iran, and Iraq, Syria. That's where it was centered. Sandwiched between all of this is the is Jude, is Judah. So what we're going to have over the next couple hundred years, we're going to have tremendous infighting between the Ptolemites and the Seleucids. And every, we're always going to be ping-ponged back in Israel. We're going to be ping-ponged back between being controlled by the Seleucids or the Ptolemites, or Ptolemies, appropriate to pronounce it. Uh, and the first hundred years after, first 120, 30 years after the death of Alexander, 
and the breakup fragmentation of his empire we're going to be controlled by the Telemites and then in the year 198 in the battle of the Banyas we're going to be controlled by the Seleucids and the Seleucids are when we're going to meet the Antiochus Antiochus III Antiochus IV and the whole Hanukkah story is going to happen in the year 167 before the common era and we meet the Hasmoneans and take us all the way to Herod so that's what we're up to I really wanted to cover everything but uh, unfortunately <laughs> it's not going to happen but I feel we covered a lot yeah we no we're now now we're going to stop we have the, yeah of course so then we're, yes then we're going to do another week uh, at least one more week before the end of the year uh, we're going to combine two other classes uh, Dan is going to send out the uh, the schedules and we're going to start from I guess the Hanukkah story and we'll try to do it a little faster but it's right, kind of you know the way, the way they say crash courses typically crash doesn't really work out the way it's intended. So, yes, the hope is that uh, I tried. I really wanted. When you go so fast, though, um, you lose a lot of the context. Of course, but that's... a lot of the minutia that's really interesting. That's, yeah, very fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah, this, all, all this is very fascinating and really important. Are we going to get to talk about um, Sephardic Jewish culture at all? Yeah, why not? Obviously, it's going to be a big deal. Spain will be a big deal. Oh, yeah, Spain's we'll huge. Have, you know, we talked about a lot uh, when we talked about Maimonides. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you recommend as a single best single volume text on the history of uh, the Jewish I Bible? would say the best single text. Well, Tulishman doesn't really have a, a, a history book, a single volume. The best probably is, is A History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. What? Uh, but he's, remember, he's a Chris. My, a History of the Jews by Paul Johnson. He's probably the number one most respected historian. He wrote like 78 books or 92 books. The guy's just incredible. Paul Johnson. The that did that crash course on Jewish history. It's at the, uh, it's at the Jewish yes, so, website. Yes, yeah, so um, I like, it, it, it's also, it's I like um, a crash course on Jewish history by Robert Ken Spiro because he also gives you kind of a, a perspective, a Jewish perspective, kind of traditional Jewish perspective. Uh, but it's also, it's much shorter. It doesn't give you the minutia. It gives it much, depends what you want. If you want a lot more details and also like a secular perspective, you want to for sure go with Paul Johnson, History of the Jews. Uh, he does a great job, but remember, he he's Christian. Uh, so he has his perspective. But every, remember, every historian has their own perspective. No one's, no one's really truly objective. No, no one is. Uh, uh, besides for me, of course. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, so he has he has Paul Johnson has his kind of his perspective on like what the Jewish God is, and you know, so he. I would tell you to skip like the first fifty pages where he talks about like what the Jewish God means. Just just go to the history. You know, let's don't give us your opinion. Let's shift the fact. He does a very good job of the fact, not such a good job of the opinion. And Rabbi Spiro, Rabbi Spiro, Ken Spiro. Uh, does a fantastic job in his crash course in Jewish history. And you can hit that JewishPathways.com and he has that. Is that right? Yeah, you can, you can order it. Log in and oh, you can. Yeah, you might be able to read it online or portions of it online. Yeah, little video clips there. Uh, and um, Barrel Wine does not a single volume, but Barrel Wine is a is also a um, probably the the most respected Jewish historian. Probably, uh, he's fantastic. B e r e l, also a fascinating character. He's still he's still around, but he's a fantastic historian and does a really good job of that. Thank you.
Thanks, yes, thank you all. See you all, uh, not in, uh, not next week, but the week after. Yes. Whoever does not have a copy of this, we really want to finish, fill out another, uh, another table.